Continuing Education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. And the topics discussed are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. What's up? There it is. <laughs> I'm Justin Burke here with Chris the Chew Man Chew. Hey. And our current producer, Dr. Martha Brucato. How's it hey. going, Martha? Very happy to be here. Uh, we are having lots of Dr. Martha Brucato time this week, which is outstanding. She's an outstanding producer and just a wonderful human being. Congrats again on the forthcoming child. Thank you. We are joined tonight by an outstanding guest, Dr. Christopher Golden, who discusses neonatal HSV. I got a lot of takeaways. This was great. I am now way more terrified about any um, child that inter- uh, that behaves in any abnormal way. Uh, but before we talk about that, hey, Chris. What's up, man? Can you tell us about the show? Sure. We are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring you clinical pearls practice changing knowledge, and answer lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. We have a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Christopher Golden. He's an associate professor of pediatrics at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. He's a neonatologist, and his interests include congenital and neonatal infections, neonatal bilirubin metabolism, care of healthy newborns, and pediatric medical student education. I feel like tonight we barely scratched the surface of his knowledge base, and it is incredibly wonderful. He is the director of the Pediatrics Core Clerkship in the School of Medicine. He teaches us about risk stratification for neonatal HSV infection, the approach to diagnosis and treatment, and when you should think about HSV in a febrile infant. I learned a ton. Yep. Hopefully you guys will too, and make it simplex for you to learn. I, I like know. that one. Yeah, 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 I like that one, yeah. The simplex approach to HSV. Strong work, Chris. <laughs> Dr. Golden, thank you so much for joining us. This is very exciting. We are so thrilled to have you. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate your having me. I'd like to start by asking, because we're kind of a fun, informal group bunch, is it okay with you if we if we call you by your first name, uh, Chris or Christopher? So, so interestingly, my first name isn't Chris. Remember. William, Willie, no, Billy, no. Chris, oh, Chris, Chris, Chris is fine. Chris is fine. Chris, <laughs> Chris. okay. Um, thank you so much. I will always see you in my mind as Dr. Golden, but I want to be consistent in the in the familiarity of of joining the Cribsiders family. So absolutely, thank you, thank um, you, thank you for coming on to the show. I am so excited to have you. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself so that our listeners know all the great things that I know about you and that uh, Dr. Bercato knows about you? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, uh, looking at sort of what we talked about, I'm a 40 plus, I won't say how much more plus, 40 plus year old uh, neonatologist who loves to cook, love my wife who is an adult endocrinologist at Hopkins, I love my son who is a rising or grad, soon to graduate senior journalism major at Northwestern. I love Duke basketball, which has been painful this year, unfortunately, but we'll be Oof. back. I'm not worried. I'm Harsh. not worried. Not, not worried. Not worried. <laughs> not, not worried. Uh, and my hometown is where they give out these funny little green jackets every second or third um, Saturday, uh, Sunday in, uh, in April. Let's in April. A follow, follow up question on that. Uh, green jackets 
Oh, the Masters. Uh huh. Okay. Got it. So, there you go. It's your golf you. reference. That's right. That's right. Got it. Augusta, Augusta, Georgia. Yep. Oh uh, wow, nice, excellent. And you're so you're you're a, you're a Medpeds couple. You're a Medpeds family with you. Yeah, we, we have we have an, a power and, couple. And I I wouldn't say power couple. We just we, we we like to hang. We love each other and like to hang out <laughs> with each other. So uh, people sort of put that moniker on us, but it's like we we just we just we just do what we do. Nothing really nothing really different. So nice. yeah, nice nice. So my my question today will be, what is the, your favorite thing to cook, and why does it bring you joy? What thing, favorite thing to cook? The thing that actually my wife uh, and I, that it actually was the reason we started dating, was a cheesecake. I made a cherry cheesecake at an open house at my house Thanksgiving on my internship year. And she came over with a group of her friends. And so the comment that I hear in the background, well, the, the medical students who I, I was a Hopkins medical student and then rolled over as an intern. The story was everybody was clamoring because everybody had my cheesecake. And this little voice in the background pipes up, well, it can't be that good. A guy made it. And I'm like, have you ever had my cheesecake before? So then she ate my cheesecake. She's like, oh, this is really good. And so then, <laughs> and, and so then maybe about six to eight weeks later, we started dating. And then sort of the rest is history. As a matter of fact, her birthday was last, last weekend, last Sunday. And I made that cheesecake for her and she is not happy because she had been on this plan to lose some weight and I just basically screwed everything up. So nice. <laughs> that, was, that was the, uh, that was sort of the end story. But no, I, I like to cook an experiment and, and, and play around with a lot of different, you know, Italian, Mexican. Uh, I have not tried Indian yet, but something may be in the future. So we'll see. Excellent. Nice. We'll put the recipe on for dating advice for other yes, residents. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, indeed, indeed, indeed. Um. My question is, what brought you to your field and what keeps you there? What brought me to my field? Um, interesting story. My first day as an intern was in the Johns Hopkins NICU. And so I went in there. We had patients to see. We routed on patients. I had some really good experiences. Uh, I had a family that I followed. The, the young lady was a preemie. She wound up going home. Uh, she was in follow-up clinic over at Kennedy Krieger. Uh, for those of you who know, Kennedy Krieger Institute has a follow-up clinic for NICU graduates. And after all was uh, said and done, when she turned 18, I get this card in my mailbox at work. And I'm like, who is this graduation card from? And it was from her. And it blew me away. I'm like, oh my God, I knew her when she was a preemie. And um, yeah, it, it was just one of those sort of like, wow, wow, you know, been through all the situations that she'd had and uh, got a graduation card from her. And, and that was really, really cool. But that wasn't, I think I just, again, sort of fell into the practice of loving, taking care of very sick babies. And that was happening. And then again, sort of maybe some time after that, um, uh, that was when I got the card from her. But, you know, when, you know, when she, uh, uh, when she turned 18, it was just amazing. So, yeah. Wow. That's an amazing story. Yeah. Yeah. Very, 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 very fun. Just a very full circle sort of thing. Come to full circle sort of thing. It's amazing. Yeah. All right. Great. Well, let's uh, let's jump into some content, guys. And, okay. Uh, Martha, you want to start us off with our, our first case? All right. So we're at Cashlack Children's Hospital. Um, there's a 38 and zero week gestational age baby girl born to a 28-year-old G2P1 O-positive mother via repeat C-section. She's GBS positive. Serologies were otherwise unremarkable. Her history is significant for HSV on suppressive therapy with no active lesions at the time of delivery, and the baby is well-appearing. 
uh, rupture of membranes was zero hours, APGARs were eight and nine. So I wanted to take us and, and start at the very, very beginning. What is HSV and um, how does it manifest in neonates? Herpes simplex virus uh, has been known since the time of the ancient Greeks. Uh, it's a double-stranded DNA virus. Uh, there are two types, HSV1 and HSV2. Uh, they have slight differences in their glycoprotein uh, composition, which makes them different. The unique thing about herpes simplex virus is that it not only does it replicate like most viruses in the nucleus of the host cell, it can become latent in the dorsal root ganglion. It sits in the nerves. And then when uh, you least expect it or you are stressed or some event happens, it reactivates. So it lives in your body. And once you're infected with it, it stays with you. And so that is a problem for women and men who acquire the infection and can pass it on to other people. So that's one of the big things that we think about uh, when we are caring for moms, especially pregnant moms, their, um, their couple, their spouses uh, or partners, uh, as well as the babies. And when do we worry about HSV in a newborn baby? How does it manifest and why is it, why is it so worrisome uh, right in a newborn? Okay, so to go to that, you have to remember that the first 30 days of age are a very unique period of time uh, in your life. You are just adapting to being in the uh, extra unit environment. You're breathing on your own. Your heart rate is now being, you know, is stabilizing in a new world. Uh, you're learning how to eat and your immune system is starting to turn on and it's not completely developed. And as a result, Babies who are in the first 30 days after delivery are at a unique position to be uh, exposed to and a potentially acquire uh, herpes simplex virus or an HSV infection. So uh, it, it, we think about it in any kid under um, 30 days of age, but importantly, we have to remember that there are some cases of neonatal HSV or, or HSV acquired in the, in the first 30 days in life that may present towards maybe six weeks of age. So again, anytime in that window, an acquisition from the delivery process, which is where about 85% of all uh, neonatal HSV infections arise, uh, you have to be concerned about it. There are maybe a, uh, maybe uh, about 10% of them that occur postnatally. That's somebody, for example, who may have a cold sore or maybe asymptomatically shedding that kisses a child or touches a child. One story is about herpetic whitlow, someone that has a herpetic lesion on a finger uh, that may touch the baby. That baby is at risk for infection. That's a postnatal acquisition. And then there's the very rare phenomenon. Uh, I have actually seen it a couple of times where you can acquire it via an intrauterine infection. So that is a mom who may not be naive for HSV antibodies and she gets infected during pregnancy and transmits it on to the baby. So that's, uh, that's what we think about. So the buckets of disease, just to think about it, and I want to make clear that um, you can have um, three well-defined or at least um, well-defined manifestations of disease, but it's really a continuum. So aside from intrauterine infection, which is its own sort of entity, you can have um, what we call mucocutaneous or skin, eye, and mouth disease. That is infection that presents with findings just related to the uh, skin, the eyes, uh, or the mucous membranes. And, and actually, SEM disease is about 45% of all infections that present in the neonatal period. 
you can have disease that is consistent with encephalitis. And again, that typically uh, presents about 30% of cases of neonatal HSV. And then um, the more severe form, and they all are severe, but the most severe form is overwhelming disseminated HSV disease. And that uh, occurs in about 25% of all cases. I think that math added up right, maybe a little off, but generally uh, it's about 45, 35, 25, I think, if you, or 20, or if you wanted to do the math exactly in terms of cases of, of different types of diseases, that is skin, eye, mouth disease, encephalitis, and disseminated disease. Wow, that sort of sounds scary. Like, how, how uh, prevalent is HSV in the population? So HSV, interesting, as we're talking about adults, it's interesting. Would you believe one in six adults is seropositive for HSV? And that has been consistent over time through multiple studies evaluated. There are national studies that look at sort of uh, multiple factors related to adult health, and that's been pretty consistent over time. The incidence of disease in the neonate is interesting. There's only been one prospective study that actually looked at the incidence of HSV disease. It was done um, by Zane Brown and colleagues, published in 2003, looking at a window of about 17, 18 years. And the incidence is somewhere in the order of 1 and 3,200 cases annually, which in a U.S. population where we deliver roughly 4 million babies, the numbers, if I'm doing this right in my head quickly, come out to about 1,250 to 1,500 cases uh, of, of HSV annually in the United States. That's the only data we have prospectively, and it was done about 17 years ago. There have been multiple attempts to do retrospective analyses, and the numbers are sort of all over the place. Some have the incidence being much, much higher. Some have it being significantly lower. But I generally say one in 3,200 is probably is the only prospective data that we have at this point. And in this patient that has no active lesions that is on suppressive therapy, I imagine the risk of vertical transmission is low. But what are the things that increase risk of increase the risk of peripartum transmission? What are the the risk factors where you'd be concerned that yeah, I'm worried that this child might get HSV? So again, this is a, a scenario where the mother has been appropriately prophylaxed, and I can talk about prophylaxis a little bit later. Um, but the things that we sort of drill, or at least I, I've talked to uh, to most of my residents about, the things that increase the likelihood of vertical transmission or the mom having lesions or having evidence of HSV. So that can be active lesions or it can be asymptomatic shedding at the time of delivery. Uh, I will note that there is no indication from the OB literature that we should routinely screen mothers in their reproductive tracts for HSV at the time of delivery. A primary maternal infection, so a mom who gets infected during pregnancy and especially during the third trimester, an, a new infection uh, during pregnancy the mom has a larger number of viral particles around, and she doesn't have the ability to tr transmit her antibodies to the baby. And as a result, that baby is at higher risk of infection. Um, anything that interrupts the baby's mucocutaneous barriers. So example, women who have active HSV lesions should not have fetal scalp electrodes placed on the baby. Again, it's basically an open source that breaks the mucocutaneous barrier puts the baby at risk of acquiring infection. C-section has been demonstrated, again, another study out of uh, Seattle, Dr. Brown's group, to demonstrate that it is somewhat protective, but there have been cases of babies who acquired uh, neonatal HSV 
per, th through a perinatal acquisition with mothers who had intact membranes and had a C-section delivery. So not completely protective. Um, so those are the things that I'd worry about in a situation where you have a mom that comes in and you're worried about a kid having HSV. Should we be routinely requesting that the mom have a C-section if they have, if she has open lesions? If the mother has active lesions at the time of delivery, OB should do a C-section in, in this mother, even if it's a recurrent HSV infection. If it's a primary infection, the numbers in terms of vertical transmission have been reported uh, in the 50 to 60% range in terms of TOPS. Uh, in um, in situation where the mother has lesions, but she's had HSV prior to this pregnancy, the numbers are less than 5%. Having said that, the risk is still not zero, and the mother still has viral particles, and the mother could still transmit to the baby, even if she has active lesions and a recurrent infection. So yes, the OBs will routinely do a C-section on mothers with active lesions at the time of delivery. So this is great. Obstetrics has always uh, overwhelmed me and, and medpeds that, you know, that's the one field that we try very hard to stay away from. So focusing on, on the product of this uh, um, C-section, let's say in our example, our patient does have a history of HSV and does have active genital lesions at the time of delivery. They do a C-section and we're presented with this baby. What are we um, doing as far as observing the baby, treating the baby prophylactically. When you're concerned for infection, how is your approach towards this child? So there were multiple different pathways in iterations of the AAP Red Book. What is now in the most current edition of the Red Book 2018 version stemmed from a paper published in the uh, winter of 2013 um, which gave uh, a specific set of guidelines. As a matter of fact, the title of the paper is Guidance on Management of Asymptomatic Neonates Born to Women with Active Genital Herpes Lesions. So it couldn't be any clearer than that. But seems the relevant. It seems very relevant. So the algorithm really speaks to the fact that we, um, we are very vigilant in these women who present. So women who, even without a history of HSV, should have a speculum exam at the time of presentation to ensure that there are no vaginal lesions. If there are vaginal lesions, we again caution to do a C-section, but there may be a situation where you don't see it. There's a lesion that pops up, you know, shortly after delivery, or it's a cervical lesion, uh, or and it's not a labial lesion, or it's high in the vaginal canal. And in that situation, the baby may be born, and then you realize, oh no, we've exposed this baby. So Again, the ideal would be, again, to not have any lesions, deliver the baby by vaginal delivery, everything is fine. But if you have a scenario where there's a vaginal delivery um, and the mother has lesions that are visible that are characteristic of HSV, or if this is a C-section delivery, remember I told you that C-section is not completely felt to be protective, though uh, it is the mode of delivery that is preferred with moms with active lesions. Asymptomatic neonate, mom has lesions that are present either vaginal or C-section delivery, we ask the OBs to get a swab of the lesions for assay. So again, that can either be culture or PCR. PCR is actually a better test. It, uh, you can get results relatively quickly, but we have to realize that not every hospital has PCR access that is ready and available. Practicing at Hopkins, we are spoiled a little bit. We actually have a ready available virology lab that does PCR, that's fabulous at it, 
Uh, we don't have very many false positive results. They can do samples on almost anything. So we're blessed and fortunate in that way, but not every hospital is fortunate to have that. But the algorithm takes into consideration that you have the ability to get those results. Then it breaks into two trees. If the mother had HSV prior to pregnancy, we are assuming that she uh, a genital HSV prior to pregnancy. We are assuming that this is a recurrent infection, and that child can actually stay with mom. But at 24 hours of age, we do a little workup, including surface cultures, which we'll talk about cultures later, uh, and or PCRs, and get a blood PCR, which is something new uh, that's come out in the past 10 years. And that kid can stay with mom, and we just wait on the results. If the mother has no prior history of HSV prior to pregnancy, and you see these lesions, we ask that OB send off serologies for HSV-1 and HSV-2. There are now type-specific serologies that have been available maybe for about 20 years uh, that are out there. And that particular baby, at 24 hours of age, gets cultures, blood PCR, CSF analysis, serum transaminase analysis, particularly ALT is the thing we worry about, and that kid gets started on acyclovir. That's what we do in terms of um, this particular situation. So this kid, whose mom uh, was you know, on suppressive therapy, no active lesions, um, baby otherwise looks great, this kid could actually um, uh, have nothing uh, going on in terms of uh, evaluation uh, at the time of delivery or in the immediate newborn period. So just, but just to clarify, so if, if no active lesions, normal observation, Right. If active lesions with a C-section, normal observation. No, no. So if Sorry, okay. Vaginal or C-section. Vaginal or C-section. If you remember, I mentioned that C-section is not completely protected. Right, right, right. The algorithm says, could C-section or vaginal delivery babies in the same bucket? Again. I see. Yep. And then so we're going to monitor the baby with the PCR blood tests, skin culture, and... Yeah, if the baby is, you know, if the mother had pre-pregnancy HSV, that's what we do. If the mom right. did not have pre-pregnancy HSV, and this is a new outbreak of HSV, we try to type to figure out if the mother has a, if this really is a new infection. Because remember, some mothers may not have symptomatic lesions in life, but then present in pregnancy with them. So serology helps us to determine if this mother has a recurrent infection and just didn't have lesions in her previous history and didn't know she had HSV or a situation where uh, this is a brand new infection. A primary. And then we're empirically treating the kiddo. Correct. Great. Perfect. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask something that maybe is a little bit stepping back for a second, but thinking about HSV and its natural history. And if we weren't catching these infants, if we weren't making sure to swab them um, and understand if they're asymptomatically infected and get them on treatment, what would happen? What are uh, we trying to avoid? So again, um, the, the presence of mom having antibodies prior to delivery is key. And I think there are some children who would have HSV and maybe a milder course. The children whose mothers are um, new infection during pregnancy, didn't have time to develop antibodies. Again, the most worrisome time is during the uh, third trimester, especially late third trimester, if they don't have a chance to develop antibodies, those kids can be sick. And interestingly, it's not in the always in the immediate newborn period. So 
the average onset of neonatal HSV disease, both skin, eye, mouth disease, and disseminated disease is around 10 to 12 days of age. So it's not an immediate process. Again, it's an average. Uh, you can have some children that present very early or some children that present very late. The average onset of encephalitic disease is about 16 to 19 days of age. So again, the child is about three weeks old. So it's not an immediate uh, process. This is great. And when you are observing the kiddo for a week or two weeks later, presuming there's maybe some mild risk factors, like the C-section with no active lesions, are we watching for symptoms in those first two weeks, three weeks? And, and if so, what are the symptoms that make you concerned that this child might have HSV? And how does that relate to those 24-hour uh, swabs and testing we're doing? Right. So, so again, there is no smoking bullet. I will say this truthfully in that you can have HSV without a rash. Everyone wants to look for the rash. Yes, kids can have rashes, a lot of rashes. But there are babies who develop neonatal HSV that never develop a rash. And so I always teach people to not look for a rash. If a child comes in within the first month of life and looks unwell, HSV is still on my differential diagnosis, even if I don't see a rash. The paper that I want to remember is from uh, Kimberlin and colleagues from 2001, where they actually looked at a cohort of babies that was enrolled uh, in a clinical trial for acyclovir uh, use, and this is when we changed the acyclovir dosing. Uh, what's important to remember is that in that particular study, there were about 60% of kids that presented with evidence of a rash, meaning that there were 40% of the kids that had no evidence of a rash whatsoever. So you can't just assume if a child comes in as ill that he has to have a rash in order for you to make the diagnosis. The child may present without a rash, can have fever, lethargy, poor PO intake, uh, tachypnea, uh, tachycardia, anything that manifests that the child is ill-appearing can be a sign of HSV disease. So it's not a matter of looking for the rash every time. And I will always warn people that you should not put stock in, if I don't see a rash, the kid is otherwise well. So yeah, I, have, I, knew, I had, knew I had to think about the numbers. Uh, from that Kimberlin paper in 2001, in all comers, children with both mucocutaneous disease, central nervous system encephalitis disease, and disseminated disease, 68% of them had evidence of skin vesicles at the time of presentation. That means, so I was off by 10%. 30% of them will not have any evidence, a little over 30% will not have any evidence of vesicles. And for the most severe form disseminated disease, that's where the, basically 40% of the kids will have no evidence or may have no evidence of a rash at presentation. So with the severest manifestation, 40% of the kids may not show you anything that's obvious, just Correct. that they're ill appearing. Correct. Yeah. I think that's really going to inform our neonatal sepsis workout. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess my question would be like, say, say you're talking to parents and they, they know that uh, mom knows that she, she was, she had active lesions and baby looks fine. How do you counsel the parents? Like, I mean, I, I know some, I know some people who would be like freaking out. They're like, Oh my gosh, I'm so worried. And mm -hmm. every little thing, like how, what, what's the best way we can go about talking to parents about this? So I would use the same information I would give any mom in terms of mom or dad and anticipatory guidance at the time of discharge. If your child is not well appearing, not eating well, 
difficult to arouse, tachypnic, feels febrile, feels cold or hypothermic. That's another thing to keep in mind as well. Is having unusual movements that may be seizures, for example. That child needs to come into the emergency department and be evaluated. And when that happens, please tell them that, yes, I have a history of HSV. I was on valacyclovir prior um, to delivery, but I have a history of HSV. Because in many cases, people will not think about it and will start the child on antimicrobials, which just consist of ampicillin um, and uh, uh, cephalosporin or genomycin. And not start um, uh, and not start recyclovir. So that's something to keep in mind. And a question about that: the statistic that you gave earlier, the the one in three thousand two hundred fifty or so cases of neonatal HSV, are those in individuals where mom has a known history of HSV? That's that's all comers. That's all comers. So presumably that prevalence is higher if we know that mom has a history of herpes? Well, no. Remember, we talked about the fact that if the mom has a history of HSV, she has developed likely antibodies. It's actually the one that we worry about is the mom with no history who comes in and the child is acutely ill and has no history, and she may have asymptomatically converted. Uh, again, going back to older data from, from uh, Dr. Brown and colleagues in Seattle, there's, a tra- there's an acquisition rate of HSV in the population of about 7,000 women that they looked at um, that uh, roughly 2% of the women uh, seroconverted during pregnancy, 1% to 2%. What's interesting was 64% of the women in that cohort converted asymptomatically. They had no idea they had HSV. So known maternal history of HSV might not be a risk factor because one of the biggest risk factor is asymptomatic seroconversion during pregnancy. Asymptomatic seroconversion or late conversion in the third trimester, particularly after 36 weeks when mom has no chance to make antibodies and then no chance to send it to the baby. Got it. And the other clarification I'd want to make too with the, the HSV, I feel like we commonly learn about two types, HSV1, HSV2. HSV-1 commonly associated with oral, HSV-2 commonly associated with genital, but I know that that's not always the case. And for the neonatal transmission, are we most concerned about genital herpes? Are we most concerned about HSV-2? Is there a difference in the two um, strains? So I'm going to make this statement. I am worried about HSV infections in newborns. I am not as concerned about whether it's HSV-1 or HSV-2. They equally are virulent they equally can cause problems. And what's interesting is that what we know about HSV-1 is that there's been a changeover in time from people being only um, positive, uh, as we say, below the belt for HSV-2. We're starting to see a lot more people who are HSV-1 positive below the belt. And again, basically, there's been studies out of Europe and the United States, um, Seattle again, and uh, out of Madison, Wisconsin, that have demonstrated that uh, an uptick in HSV-1 genital cultures over time. So the transition has been made from above the belt, below the belt being sort of the dogma to the paradigm being you can't tell whether it's HSV-1 or HSV-2 in the genital tract unless you culture or PCR it and do corresponding serology in the mom. So either one, I don't get into the above the belt, below the belt analogy. As a matter of fact, I teach when I teach medical students, 
I have them sort of say, which one is it? And then I sort of make them surprised when I say it could be either one. And they give me this sort of funny look like, yes, up the above the belt, below the belt no longer matters. And and both can cause disease in, in newborns. So, yes. so you yes. really don't care. And then I had one more question before moving on that I wanted to clarify as far as risk factors. Mm-hmm. Um, prematurity. How does this affect the risk of the buckets of herpes simplex, if at all? So we, again, know that the immune system develops over time. Premature infants have a decreased immune response. They have, again, remember your immune system is not just T cells and B cells and immunoglobulin and natural killer cells. It's skin, it's lung, all the things that provide barriers to outside pathogens causing problems inside the patient. So again, a 24-weeker skin is not the same as a 37-weeker skin. It's very immature. It's gelatinous. It is very prone to, um, you know, to not being barrier efficient or having appropriate keratinization. So those kids are at high risk. And um, this one study that's looked at the largest cohort of, um, uh, of premature neonates with HSV infection, we did it at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, published in 2006 in pediatrics, and demonstrated that all of those kids either developed encephalitic disease or disseminated disease. And so, again, sort of if you want to say more severe and use that terminology, we actually saw those children have more invasive disease as opposed to just mucocutaneous disease. So, again, prematurity. And remember, again, the fact that we don't routinely start mothers on a uh, valacyclovir prophylaxis until 36 weeks gestation, the kids who are born prematurely whose mothers have HSV are at higher risk because the moms are not continually suppressed. I wanted to think about our patient um, that we kind of set up the story with, that we have this 38-weeker who was born asymptomatic, doesn't have a rash, and she goes with mom, and the plan is for this baby to have, um, say mom does have active genital lesions, and so this baby is staying with mom until the 24-hour swabs are going to be collected. Um, but now she's 12 hours old and mm-hmm. is a little bit irritable. The nurse thinks it's because she's having difficulty latching, but at the next vital sign check, her temperature is a bit low at 36 degrees Celsius. They think maybe it's an environmental. She's bundled up, and her temperature is rechecked, but now it's dropping even lower. It's 35. So is this enough for us to be worried that she's symptomatic now? Absolutely. So again, the 24-hour window is given primarily because if the baby has any maternal secretions in the, um, um, in the vernix that may be present and weren't quite wiped off, you swab the baby and it's positive. Oh, uh, is it the mother? Is it the baby? What's going on? So we do that 24-hour window. In this scenario, at 12 hours of age, all bets are off. This is a sick kid. You're hypothermic. You're, you're irritable. You're not latching. This is not a healthy baby. This is a child who needs an evaluation for HSV and for bacterial infections. I don't want to forget, again, uh, we talk about one in 3,200. Again, the more common infections, again, are group B strep, E. coli, and listeria, again, in some cases, as pathogens in the neonatal period. So bacterial pathogens are ones that we can't exclude in our workup. So I would want to do an HSV workup, and I also work up for bacterial infection as well. And what does that workup mean to you? What are, what, what's included in that? What's, what's the workup mean? Okay. So we talked about some of this when we talked about the, uh, the process that's done 
in moms who have no prior history of uh, HSV infection pre-pregnancy who uh, have lesions at delivery. But for a workup of a child who has HSV, we would do surface testing. And again, I want to shy away from saying culture because we now have places, and Hopkins is a place in particular that does PCR. Not everybody has PCR or access to PCR, but I do want to say you want to do surface testing. And I look for mucocutaneous surfaces, both eyes, the nose, the mouth, the rectum, and some skin surface that's open. So often the umbilical stump, I will swab as well. That's an open mucosal surface. If the kid has a rash, unroof that vesicle, get some vesicle fluid, and swab the actual vesicle base, because if they're infected cells, you actually may catch some infected cells there. That's surface testing that I would do for that child, okay? So that's how I would start for skin. For other uh, testing that I would do, uh, I'd always do a lumbar puncture. So this is a child who would get an LP, cell count, differential, glucose, protein, Again, don't forget to do the bacterial testing, but I would send viral testing on the CSF. PCR is really the best test, though culture still is done in some places. The details really are that PCR just frankly is a better test. And, you know, at places that actually do it routinely or have a lab that's set up to do it, you can get results within 24 hours. So LP uh, obviously is done as well. The other thing I would actually do uh, also is blood PCR. That is not used to um, distinguish different types of diseases. I mentioned skin eye mouth disease, meningitis and meningoencephalitis, excuse me, or, um, or disseminated disease, but it can be a helpful adjunctive test uh, as well. The other thing you want to make sure that you're doing are tests that are specific to evaluating what's going on with the child. So if the child has respiratory symptoms, you want to get a chest x-ray to look for evidence uh, of acute uh, either infiltrates uh, or other processes that may suggest a pneumonitis or a pneumonia. If the child is having frank abnormal movements, an EEG is always important. While you're evaluating, it's important to get an image of the head. MRI has been demonstrated to be a better test than a CT scan or sonogram, less radiation than a CT, better imaging results than an MRI, um, than, than, a, than an ultrasound, excuse me. Uh, so MRI is a uh, much better test to be able to be used. If the child has skin, concern for skin lesions, and obviously with a vaginal delivery, they would have had that. They could have had eye involvement as well. So I always get an ophthalmologist to come to look for uh, corneal changes for an acute infection. And if there's evidence of retinal disease like older chorea retinitis, you can see that as well. If there is disseminated disease, you worry about electrolyte abnormalities, adrenal insufficiency can occur in the setting of this, so you want to make sure the kid's not hyponatremic or hyperkalemic. I mentioned transaminases as a marker of liver inflammation. The virus has a tropism for the liver also. You want to look at that as well to make sure that there's no additional uh, uh, things that are there. And I think I touched everything. Yeah. Can I ask, the testing that we're doing for individuals that are C-section, asymptomatic at 24 hours. Is that just that SEM swab, the mucosal region swabs, or are we also doing blood PCR? So we're doing, so with that child whose mother has a previous, has no previous history of HSV, who we do the antibody testing on mom, we're doing essentially most of the workup. So we're doing surface cultures, blood PCR, 
CSF analysis and transaminases. We're not going the whole month doing the eye exam and things of that nature. But I think if you have a child who presents with those things, I would add them to the, the, the additional portion of the exam as well. So, and again, it's the surface testing, whether it's culture or PCR, um, uh, that should be done in that process as well. If we have a child that is swabbed and test negative, does that mean that we did not have vertical transmission and therefore no longer have to worry about HSV in a newborn? So I'm going to, I'm going to take, a, I'm not going to plead the fifth exactly, but I'm going to say this. You have a child that has been treated for a short period of time with uh, antiretroviral therapy. Our typical story is a child that presents later in life, who's really uh, later in the first month of age, who's really, really sick. I have not had encountered a situation where a child has been on a short course of therapy off and then come back into the hospital. But I can't say that it's not possible that a child could, we could treat our kid, kid look well, labs otherwise fine, go home, and then come back in at 26, 27 days of age, sick, with HSV. Again, I think most of what we know is about, again, two um, cohorts, kids treated immediately after birth for what we know in terms of our management and what has been outlined for people and what we do routinely, and the kid that comes in who's really, really sick with either encephalitis or a new rash. So what happens with this sort of treat for a little while, get off, come back in? I would still think the child would probably still be at risk. So I would, I would, shudder to say that we can say this kid is completely out of the woods great um so move into a very different scenario 21 day old febrile infant who is presenting to the emergency department is ill appearing we're concerned that they have sepsis what pieces of data do you need to say that this kid should start empiric treatment for hsv the child is sick i'm not being funny in my mind, there's always been a back and forth about should we start acyclovir, should we not start acyclovir, should we not burden the child with being exposed to acyclovir. My thought is, again, I don't work in an emergency department, my work in a, in a NICU. So I have a more control setting. I have a monitor on the kid. I'm watching the kid. I'm seeing what happens if the kid has a clinical deterioration, develops respiratory distress, or has elevations in transaminases or becomes febrile. In the setting where you're in the emergency department, you don't have that luxury. Having said that, in a child who presents under 30 days of age with concerns for infection, I have to get HSV on the differential, and I would do the workup and start acyclovir. And all, so, uh, and not even to push back, because it sounds reasonable, but I'll say, you know, I'm seeing more and more some of this febrile infant literature where people are becoming more and more reluctant to even do a full LP as a child ages. So maybe if they're not 21 days, you know, they're 24 days, they're 26 days and have a mild fever with a runny nose or some other type of viral URI. Are there certain things that push you to say, yeah, this is probably we have another cause. This is a viral URI, you know, 22 day olds also have fevers. Or is it if the kid is 27 days old and has a fever, we need to be evaluating for HSV and empirically treating for HSV. There have been a couple of papers that talk about the creep uh, or use or creeping into this idea of using acyclovir in 60-day-olds and 120-day-olds who present with fever. Uh, there's been battering about in the literature about that. 
I would strongly say that 30 days or under, child comes in with a fever, I do the workup, I do a acyclovir, I treat that kid as if he potentially could have HSV. And as I mentioned, there have been some reports of children as far out as six weeks of age who have, have HSV that was acquired during the neonatal period. So I'm not so sure that I would say a 37-day-old that I would completely say, eh, this kid probably, you know, in the absence of, you know, upper respiratory symptoms, just a fever, not acting right, I'm not sure I can completely rule it out. And even in the setting of where everybody's sick at home with RSV or adenovirus, I have, you know, two other kids at home that are not well. I think you have to be very, very sure of what you're doing, meaning that you have clear evidence that this is a child with an upper respiratory infection or a gastroenteritis, um, a viral uh, GI bug, and that you have follow-up. So it becomes less and less important as the kid gets or ages out, if you will. And we, we never talk about aging out in neonatology, but if the kid ages out uh, of the situation. But, um, but I would definitely say keep it in mind. And final, uh, just to, to loop back, does mom's HSV status play a role in the risk stratification? Is it something we should be chart reviewing? Or one of my takeaways is almost thinking no, because so, this could be an asymptomatic. So, so, if the, so if the mother has a history of HSV, the vertical transmission rate is less than 5%, but it's not zero. And if you have enough of a story that makes you worry that this child is encephalopathic, or the child has acute hepatitis, or uh, I hate the word transaminitis. If you've ever been in the NICU with me when people use that word, I get angry. I said, hepatitis is inflammation of the liver. Transaminitis is elevation of some numbers that you guys have. I've never seen a number that's been inflamed. So I hate the word transaminitis. That's another, another side conversation. But anyway, we see a child with liver inflammation or evidence of pneumonia or something along that line or something that concerns you, that kid gets a cycle of beer if I'm thinking the kid is sick enough to potentially have uh, a bacterial infection. Um, and the actual, the literature on that, actually, there is ED literature on that. Um, actually, it came out of Baylor. The woman's name is, if I'm blanking on it, Dr. Cabanis, uh, who is an ED physician, published in JP 2008. They actually looked at about 6,000 neonates admitted to a children's hospital in Houston, Texas. And they noted that roughly 8% of the kids had non-HSV viral infections, only two-tenths of a percent had HSV infections, and about 5% had serious bacterial illnesses, that's things like bacterial meningitis, bacterial infections of the bloodstream, or urinary tract infection. What they noted was that HSV infection of all types, either mucocutaneous disease, encephalitis, or disseminated disease, were statistically significant in their cohort or as prevalent as bacterial meningitis. So if you're worried enough to think this kid has a disseminated infection, and even to the point of having meningoencephalitis, I have to have HSV on my differential. Equally as prevalent as bacterial meningitis. Is Stati that the Statistically yeah. as, pre as prevalent as bacterial meningitis. Wow. That's more prevalent than I thought. <laughs> yes. Yes. From, from, again, that's a quarter of 6,000 uh, uh, children in an emergency department in a, a major medical center in uh, in Texas. So neonatal admissions um, during that time that was a pretty important paper. And again, I think that may have refocused a lot of ED physicians on, hey, this is something that we need to do for uh, uh, for evaluating these kids. That's practice changing. Yeah. Um, can we talk about treatment? You know, what do we do? You've said acyclovir. How is it given? What are the risks? 
So uh, 20 milligrams per kilogram intravenous every eight hours for, again, depending on what type of disease you have. If you have mucocutaneous disease, it's, again, you just have skin, eye, and mouth disease, the CSF is negative. There's no elevation of the transaminases, no concern for uh, respiratory disease or other involvement. It's 14 days. If the child has, again, meningoencephalitis or disseminated disease, it's 21 days of IV therapy. No PO therapy. Oral acyclovir is poorly bioavailable. And as such, children treated with oral acyclovir do not get the benefit of the drug itself. And that is what we are, um, that's what we want. So the child gets a full um, evaluation uh, in that regard. It seems like there's a lot of reluctance on the inpatient side to start acyclovir. And one of the teaching points I think that I took away was that a acyclovir infiltrate was disastrous or that acyclovir had other medical risks and complications. So acyclovir infiltrates are not pretty. Again, it is not a benign drug on the blood vessels, but HSV disease is not benign on the child either. So, you know, for what that's worth, I'll put, you know, uh, I, I will sort of uh, throw that out there. And the study that actually looked at the current dosing regimen we use was actually done uh, 2001 by Kimberlin and colleagues. And what they demonstrated was that the children actually did not have severe outcomes in terms of renal issues. The things that we worry about are renal toxicity because of crystallization of the acyclovir in the distal tubules of the kidney. We worry about neutropenia uh, as another um, sort of long-range complication of, uh, of treating these kids. But Again, in the study that, that, uh, that he published at the time, there was not a demonstration that these outcomes were so severe that the child should not be treated. And again, in the, there was one concern about neutropenia, but again, it was unclear whether or not the neutropenia was associated with the child being ill because he had HSV or the actual drug itself. So um, the concerns about renal and bone marrow toxicity are the ones that are typically brought up more often than not. Uh, and, and, and to that, I say, you know, we have to be very vigilant in what we do uh, in terms of therapy with these kids uh, and just make sure that, and again, in that uh, study from 2001, there was no concomitant child who had neutropenia that wound up getting a bacterial infection because of the neutropenia. Now, how closely should we be monitoring our, our patients when they're on acyclovir then? Or should we be getting routine labs on them, like every other, every third day, like every other day, every day? One to two times a week in terms of labs to look at CBC, to look at evidence of, again, neutropenia and um, a electrolyte panel with a BUN and creatinine to look for any evidence of uh, a bump in the, uh, in the creatinine is the one thing that was most notably in, uh, in that 2001 Kimberlin study. So that's what I would, I would monitor closely. You're going to watch for urine output as well as a manifestation of any potential nephrotoxicity. And I remember being taught if you're ever evaluating for HSV with the skin infections, with the CSF, with some blood, if you're evaluating, it means you have to empirically treat. Is that true dogma, or is there ever a situation where you might be evaluating but not so concerned that you don't empirically treat it? Is there that much urgency to getting acyclovir in the bloodstream? Uh, Sean colleagues, 2011 pediatrics noted that the later you start acyclovir, the, uh, the more likely you are to have a child who does not survive. 
So if I'm concerned enough to do the workup on the child and evaluate him for HSV, I'm starting a cycle here. Easy enough. Yep. Any other questions that people have or any other things that you can think of, Dr. Golden, that we want to include as far as evaluation and treatment of neonatal HSV? So once the child completes the treatment course, uh, what's next? A cyclovir prophylaxis. So again, just as prophylaxis, not for treatment, but for prophylaxis. Uh, again, another study, again, Dr. Kimberlin uh, at UAB has done, Dr. David Kimberlin is, uh, is a fabulous infectious disease specialist, has done, led all the studies on these things. They demonstrated a New England Journal paper that the use of prophylactic acyclovir was beneficial in improving or neurodevelopmental outcomes in children who had been infected and had disease during the neonatal period. So children get six months worth of acyclovir prophylaxis treatment that has gone on for six months after the initial infection. They actually have CBC evaluations, again, and renal um, testing to make sure there's no nephrotoxicity uh, or bone marrow toxicity uh, as well. But again, this is suppressive therapy. The idea came from the fact that data from the early 90s demonstrated that if a child has an HSV infection and has more than three recurrences during the first six months of age, that child is at risk for having long-term neurodevelopmental complications. So the idea really is to save the brain from having issues. That's really what we're looking for. Made sense. And that prophylaxis is presumably for not reinfection, but reactivation of the latent HSV in the dorsal ganglia, correct? Right, the reactivation, basically sort of tamp down the actual virus reactivating itself. Again, as I said, it's three recurrences in the first six months, bad neurodevelopmental outcomes. So the idea is to get them through that first six-month window with as minimal neurodevelopmental sequelae of the infection as possible. And I assume these prophylactic doses orally, correct? Yes, that, that is oral. That is oral. Again, and it's not for treatment. If the, There have been scenarios where the children have been on prophylaxis and recur with infection. And those children actually get started back on IV acyclovir as treatment doses, and they get put back on standard prophylactic doses. Uh, there's a whole other body of literature on uh, children who have toll-like receptor 3 abnormalities and have increased risk of HSV infection. I'm not going to touch that. That would be a whole other 30-minute discussion. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, that's, uh, that's something also uh, to consider as well. But again, those children who are on prophylaxis, who have a recurrence of active infection, get put on treatment IV doses, and they get put back on antiviral therapy thereafter. This might be a silly question, but then when do we make the switch to valley cyclovir? <laughs> so um, great question. Valley cyclovir uh, is beneficial because it has a valine ester on it, which makes it orally bioavailable. I'm not sure if there have been any studies that have looked at oral valet cyclovir in treatment of or prophylaxis for HSV. Uh, so I don't know that literature. I'll just be frankly honest, but I don't think there have been any data to suggest that that's available or possible. One thing I'd like to ask about is clearly there's racial inequities and disparities prevalent through so much of medicine. And we want to use this platform to identify and address some of the issues of these racial disparities. How does does race play a role in HSV infection or how does HSV in, infection and, and race, can you talk about the race, racial inequalities and disparities of, of HSV infection? 
So there was actually a paper done again out of Baltimore, out of the emergency department at Hopkins, published uh, about six, seven years ago, where they looked at people who were seropositive for HSV. One of the biggest risk factors was being a non-Hispanic black person or being a female. So there is both concern that amongst racial and ethnic groups, uh, as well as gender-based issues with regards to risk of infection with HSV. So what I would say is that there still needs to be active concern uh, in populations about sexually transmitted illnesses anyway. Um, and again, if you look at the data from uh, the CDC puts out a data every, uh, usually every September about sexually transmitted infection in the United States, and overwhelmingly African-American uh, and Hispanic patients are at higher risk of requiring sexually transmitted infections. And so we actually, again, one of the residents will tell you my famous saying, birds of a feather flock together. So if I'm worried about gonorrhea, if I'm worried about syphilis, if I'm worried about chlamydia, I have to be worried about HSV as well. So yes, there is a concern there. And I would say that amongst African-American and Hispanic patients, there needs to be more uh, sort of investigation and evaluation, in particular with regards uh, to what can be done to stem the higher numbers of STIs, uh, including HSV, in um, minoritized populations. Thank you. We've talked about a lot, and I think this has been great, not just in looking at newborns that have nonspecific symptoms and risk factors for HSV, but also an approach to febrile infants later on in life. Are there big take-home points that you really want to make sure our listeners and we walk away from this talk from with? I do want to make sure that people recognize that neonatal HSV, while it's not as common as other conditions in the newborn period, the consequences in both the short and the long term can be particularly devastating. We have to have our antenna up and be vigilant in watching for these infections. I will make a point from the OB side you mentioned uh, earlier. There is no standard recommendation for testing women for HSV in pregnancy, if people didn't recognize that. The um, United States Preventative Service Task Force came out with a paper in 2016, which basically balked at the idea of making it a standard or a requirement to test women in pregnancy, not only women in pregnancy, but people in general, sort of just use screening for HSV infection. Um, the sensitivity and specificity of the tests that are out there on the market, there may be a positive predictive value as low as uh, 50%. So you've got 50% of people with a positive test who really are positive and 50% who may not be positive. So that's not, not great. a great way to sort of manage in terms of screening tests. So that's where the literature is. Uh, and there was a great editorial associated with that particular paper that came out in JAMA where there was overall uh, a concern of what to really do about this. And what was actually recommended was that we be very, very active in our evaluation of patients potentially with herpes. This is again, Dr. Edward Hook at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, who also said, you know, using a two-step process for testing, mobilizing the quality of herpes testing, again, a 50% positive predictive value is not the greatest, to take away the stigma about having genital herpes infection. It's not something that people go around talking about. And then use patients who are actually symptomatic to use the current testing regimen for symptomatic patients and their partners. So I want to give attribution to Dr. Hook uh, at UAB, who sort of gave this sort of guidelines in 2016 for sort of managing this. So uh, something to keep in mind as well. So there still need to be a lot of steps made to sort of decrease 
the burden of HSV within the adult population, which then subsequently affects children. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us today. I mean, this was this was amazing. Uh, it was beautiful. I think I brought home a lot of teaching pearls that I'll share with residents, and I can't thank you enough for joining. Is there anything that you'd like to plug, any resources out there, or anything that you'd like us to share with listeners, students, residents, attendings that are listening to the show? I think one of the things I want to mention, and actually this is a book that I think is absolutely fascinating, Ina Park is a uh, associate professor of family medicine out at UCSF, and she's just released a book called Strange Bedfellows, Adventures in the Science, History, and Surprising Secrets of Sexually Transmitted, or STDs for Sexually Transmitted Diseases. I've read excerpts of the book. I actually ordered the book. It looks fascinating what she sort of delved into. She uses a little bit of humor. She uses some um, sort of anecdotal stories, and she uses a lot of science to sort of describe the issues of sexually transmitted infections uh, in uh, in adults. So I think something that people should uh, get a read for. I'm actually looking forward to reading more. I've actually seen a couple of outtakes and actually been very, very good, um, but I'm looking forward to reading it myself. What a great title. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to check it out. Yep. Excellent. Well, again, thank you so much for, for taking you. the time. We're gr very grateful. Our audience is grateful. And uh, we really benefit from your expertise. So so thank you for sharing that with us and, and appreciate you coming on the show. Absolutely. Thank you for having thank me. Thank you right. so much for doing this. Thank I you. always learn so much from you. Thank you. This has been another episode of The Cribsiders. It's for the kids. Get show notes at thecribsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list, Knowledge Food Formula Feeds, to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. We are committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. To do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or any podcast player. Also, you should feel free to email us at thecribsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producer for this episode, Dr. Martha Brucato. Thank you for joining us tonight. I've been Dr. Justin Lee Burke. I've been Martha Brucato. And this has been Chris the Chimanchu. Thank you. Good night. Bye. Bye. Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.